This is Priya Malik, Managing Director at Step Global Group. And this is Abtin Baziri, Managing Director at Brevet Capital Management. Welcome to the Investment Migration Report. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not intended to be investment, tax, or other professional advice or a recommendation to buy or refrain from buying any security, product, or service. The views and opinions expressed are our own and do not represent the views or opinions of our employers. Hi, welcome to the Investment Migration Report. Uh, so Priya and I uh, were discussing EB-5 and investment migration a few months ago and came up with the idea of hosting a podcast. And here we are. Um, there really is a lack of uh, information out there about EB-5, investment migration, and the various different programs. And we thought it'd be great to put a podcast together, or a program together, and really help um, answer various questions on various topics. So Priya, as a Canadian, how did you get involved in investment migration at EB-5? So I'm Canadian, but I am a U.S. lawyer. I went to school in the U.S. I went to law school in the U.S. And um, I actually didn't know anything about investment migration. I'd always known about immigration. I'd been interested in immigration law throughout law school. But what I really found out about the EB-5 program was actually when I was doing some real estate in Florida and I attended a real estate conference and there was an EB-5 lawyer there that was talking about the EB-5 program and what she does and sort of how it works. And I found it super interesting. And I just thought to myself, you know, being a lawyer myself, that would be a really interesting field or industry to sort of get into. So I researched it a bit more and I finally just decided that it was something I'm going to try out. And that's what got me into the EB-5 industry. So I I kind of did it backwards. I did it the opposite of yours. I, uh, uh, went to business school and you know got this job opportunity to lead an EB-5 regional center and then became a lawyer afterwards because I was so infatuated with understanding the law and understanding the various different, um, you know, wh- whether it's immigration law, whether it's securities law, real estate law, and how all those different parts of the law interacted. Um, so I, I, uh, I think it was 2011 or 2012, through my business school, I got an opportunity to, uh, to essentially manage and operate an EB-5 regional center for three publicly traded uh, real estate companies. And uh, essentially, you know, 2011 was very, very early in the EB-5 program. There was not a lot of information out there. Um, you know, the EB-5, um, you know, marketplace wasn't established as it was, you know, the last few years. And basically they said, here's the keys to this business. And we think you need to go raise money in China. And I just got on the plane, hopped up to China and started going knocking on doors, trying to figure out EB-5. And, you know, it took me a, a couple of years and crashing and burning to really understand the business. Uh, but that's that's how I got started. Um, so where, where did you go to law school, uh, Priya? I went to law school in Miami, in Florida. Um, actually, first I went to law school in Toledo, Ohio, and then I did my master's at Miami um, and did that as well in real property law. So everything kind of combined in EB-5. And, you know, you were saying about how you first went to China And China was a huge market even when I first started in EB-5. But of course, I didn't really feel like I had the background to get into the Chinese industry per se um, or the Chinese market. So I looked into the Middle East and there wasn't a lot going on in terms of investment migration. And so that's how um, I ended up here. And it's actually been really great because the market for the Middle East and Africa and India has grown so much. I think it's 
obviously it's never going to be China and the volume that comes out of China, but it has grown a lot over the past few years. Um, you know, I've known you for a long time and I know that your family immigrated to the U.S., um, but how, what program did they come under? Do you, do you have any background on that? Could you tell us about that? Yeah, and so um, Priya says here, she means Dubai. So I'm based in New York, Priya's based in Dubai. Um, it, it's interesting, you know, I, I was born in Iran and we're going through a war and revolution. And my father was actually uh, given a death sentence under the new regime. Um, and, you know, we tried to flee. We tried to flee in 1979. We couldn't. In 1980, we we're actually trying to flee, uh, you know, through Pakistan border and, you know, our passports and all the money got stolen. So my father was actually given a pardon and had to go back into the Air Force and serve during the Iran-Iraq War. So then in 1989, when the Iran-Iraq War ended, we actually went to um, the U.S. Embassy in Abu Dhabi to try to get a visa to the United States. We were rejected. Um, we actually, um, separately, we, we, uh, we ended up uh, going to Germany and became pol political refugees in Germany. And that was a long uh, process. My dad went to Austria and snuck into the border you know, to, from, from, from Austria to Germany, me, my mom, and two sisters went to France, uh, spent a week in Belgium, and then tried to go to Germany from Belgium, got lost on the road, ended up in Holland, and then finally ended up in Germany. We, we, uh, we actually got, uh, went through the immigration program in Germany, but as we were in Germany, we applied for political asylum through the uh, Catholic Charities and their partners in, in, uh, in Germany called Kaiser, and then moved to the United States as green card holders in 1991. So very familiar with the, with the plight of uh, moving to the United States. I mean, you know, people that have immigration issues from, from political issues, of people that you know, want economic freedom to all of that. So it's something that's near and dear to my heart. And I've been, you know, the last 10 years involved in, in the EB-5 program and you know, understand various other investment migration programs, which you get to see a lot of those being in Dubai. Um, maybe tell us a little bit about uh, Dubai and the Dubai mar uh, market and the investment recreation market in Dubai. So I think the Dubai market and especially, um, yeah, Dubai, the Middle East, India, Africa, I think everyone comes from the same sort of mentality where they are trying to just plan for the better future of their children. Um, I think one of the main themes that we see with all of our clients, or not all of them, but a majority of them, I would say 98% of our clients, is that they're wanting to send their kids to school or to work in the U.S. And so they're looking for a good option, a good, easy, surefire option in order to get that green card, get that permanent residency, and eventually a passport, and be able to have their kids have a secure future. The interesting thing about Dubai and the UAE is that no one is really a permanent resident here. Everyone is sort of on a temporary visa, which needs to be renewed every few years. So people have already taken that first step of moving away from their home countries and coming to Dubai to work or to go to school. Um, and they're ready sort of to make that next step further west. And I think that's what makes it such an interesting market when it comes to investment migration. And of course, there are a lot of different programs now, but the U.S. being so strong in terms of educational background and quality of life always remains one of the most popular destinations in terms of investment migration. So Priya, would you say Dubai is kind of like a purgatory, like a gateway that people kind of use as a stepping stone to figure out what other what country they want to end up in and where the country they want to migrate to? 
I would say that. I, I would also say that most people are very happy here in Dubai. They have a good life. They have a good quality of life, a good lifestyle. They have good jobs. Um, they're making good money, which they're able to save up. Um, and it's, it is a lot to do with their children. So they're trying to figure out that stepping stone, that next step for their children more than anything. Because at the end of the day, if they were having to go back to their home country for whatever reason, many of their children were even born here in Dubai or in the UAE. They've never even been back to their home country or the passport that they hold. Um, and so to have to go back there after living their whole lives in the UAE would be a little bit uncomfortable, I would say. So parents are looking for that future plan for their children. It's not so much the parents themselves. They're actually quite happy here. Um, but because they've already made that first step in migrating, it's a little bit easier to make that second step, I would say. And I guess, you know, Dubai is kind of like Hong Kong. It's kind of the financial center. So when people are investing from various different markets in the Middle East, they're probably looking at Dubai as kind of a place to go and do homework and figure out where they want to invest, also figure out where they want to immigrate to in various different immigration programs. Maybe you want to talk about that and, you know, how the, the Middle East market is and how EB5 has become so popular in the, in the Middle East and other regions of the world. Yeah, I mean, when I first came to Dubai, which was seven or eight years ago, we were one of the first consulting firms that set up um, EB-5. There were maybe one or two other people doing EB-5 at the time, but it was definitely not a widely known program. Um, there was a lot of education that had to go into it, a lot of seminars we had to hold, meetings with people, sort of telling them about the program and getting the details of the program out there. And actually, just as a side note, that's why I think it's great to have a podcast like this, because there is a lot of misinformation, especially now where there are so many people selling the EV5 program. There are so many consultants out there that maybe aren't the best trained or don't know the ins and outs of the program from a legal standpoint or things like that. A lot of misinformation goes around and, you know, we get questions on a daily basis that are just inaccurate information, which we then have to go back and re-educate people and tell them what the program really is about so that they have a good understanding about it. And I think that's really important is to clear up that misinformation. And so it's become a really popular program here in the Middle East. Um, we have a lot of clients coming out of India, especially and Dubai being a good hub between Africa and India um, and the rest of the Middle East, it's, it's become a really popular program. So Priya, you know, about 10 years ago, roughly when I started, uh, you know, investment migration business and EB-5 business, there were only maybe a few countries, maybe US, Canada, UK, and Australia that had, you know, these investment migration programs. Today, you know, there's 40 plus countries that have competing programs and growing. And, you know, they all have different rules, regulations, how long it takes, you know, what kind of citizen you become, whether you become a green collar holder or whether you actually become a local, whether you, you, your money, you have to pay it back or it's a fee. You know, maybe you want to just kind of uh, elaborate on all the various programs and, you know, which programs you think are probably the, both the best value and which programs, you know, do you have a chance to become a, a local citizen and just have all the rights and uh, privileges that the locals have? I think you're right. I think over the past couple of years, there's just been an influx of all these countries that are jumping on the investment migration bandwagon. 
I think because they've seen how much money can actually come into the country and help the country's economy through these programs. Um, I think one unique thing about the U.S. program, which is really great and which is very helpful and appealing to our clients, especially out of this region, is because, like I said, a lot of them are happy living here. They're happy living their lives, doing their jobs, making good money. They don't necessarily want to migrate and live full time in the U.S., and if you compare the U.S. program with a program like Canada, for example, Canada has very stringent um, stringent requirements as to how long you actually have to stay in the country to maintain your PR. Whereas with the U.S. program, of course, you have to be a U.S. permanent resident. You have to be a resident of the U.S. It has to be your home. But they do also have less stringent requirements as to how long you physically have to be in the country to maintain your PR. They also have options like the reentry permit, for example, if you're going to be out of the country for longer periods of time that give you that option. And I think that's something really unique to the U.S. program, which gives it sort of a leg up compared to other programs which require you to be in the country right away. Yeah, and, and you know, some of the other things I think that it's important to note, you know, talking to various different investors from all over the world, it seems the two most important things that investors use to choose, you know, what, um, what country they're going to immigrate to or what investment program, investment migration program they're going towards is number one, you know, education for their kids. And it's usually not, you know, first or secondary or, or primary education, but secondary education, they're, you know, universities. And the United States has, you know, 250 plus you know, unique uh, universities that are very advanced universities. Canada does as well. I mean, I think, you know, those are some of the top countries with some of the best universities in the world. And then the second, you know, uh, I think feel, people feel comfortable uh, taking their money and their investments to somewhere where there's a rule of law, where their assets will be protected. Do you see, do you see that to be the case? And if not, what are some of the other programs, uh, what are some of the other reasons that you see that people are drawn to the investment migration uh, programs? I think that's true. It's it's security overall, you know, security of assets, but it's also just general personal security. I think that especially with things like the COVID pandemic, which happened last year, really opened people's eyes to how unsecure, how unstable situations can really get in certain countries under certain control. Um, and it's those things that really open people's eyes to the possibility of gaining more security. So I do think it is security asset wise, but I think it's personal security as well that people are seeking out. And that is why they want to go to the West. So like you said, there are other programs like, you know, Portugal has a golden visa program. There are several European countries that have golden visa programs. Um, but people who are really looking for that long-term security tend to move towards the Western countries and especially the U.S. I think some of the you know, downfalls of EB-5, and I think if, if those were um, fixed by Congress, you, you know, the EB-5 for sure would be the number one program. Is the you know the, some of the long wait times and bureaucracy in terms of getting your visa. But the, you know the other strong points from EB-5, I think, is one you become a naturalized citizen and you have all the rights and responsibilities. And this is something I think a lot of people don't know. There are various members of Congress today that were not American citizens. They came through a green card, they became American citizens, and now they're legislatures and they're members of our Congress and they're actually making laws in the United States. 
No other country, I think, offers that where you can go, you know, become a green cardholder, become a citizen and become a legislator, become a member of parliament, a member of Congress. And then separately, I think, uh, you know, the EB-5 program is one of the only programs that actually for you to qualify to get a green card and then later citizenship is that, you know, you, you, have, an, you have to make an investment to create jobs, but your investment will be returned where, whether it's, you know, some other countries out there, you pay a fee or you buy real estate or you give, you know, a certain dollar amount to the jurisdiction that you never get back. Could you maybe elaborate on some of those and compare and contrast some of the programs and what do you hear in the market that people like or dislike about EB-5 or about some of the other European programs? I think the major barrier for the U.S. program is probably the tax structure of the U.S. Now, I'm not a tax specialist, so I can't really get into the details of it. But I think uh, people know that the tax structure in the U.S. is a little more stringent than other places. And people who are especially involved in business um, get a little bit concerned. Now, people who are going to go into the U.S. and get a job and start working, they're a little bit less concerned about that because they understand, you know, I'm making an income in the U.S. I need to pay for, for that income. I need to pay taxes on that. But people who are business people are a little bit more concerned. And I think that's the major barrier for the EB-5 program. Outside of that, I really don't see any other issues with the program. I think it's a great program um, that can get people through to permanent residency and ultimately citizenship fairly easy and quickly. And so I think that, you know, it's bringing in a lot of money into the economy as well. And I don't really see any other downfalls to the program. But I know there's a lot going on legislatively right now. Um, and I know you've been involved in that. So can you give us a little bit of an update on what's going on legislatively? Sure. So we'll have our next uh, program that we'll dedicate to specifically going over, you know, in detail, the legislative efforts. But, you know, to, to you know, just a, a quick uh, overview, basically EB-5 is a pilot program that, um, you know, at least the regional center program is a pilot program that initially was approved in 1990 as part of the Immigration Act of 1990. And then the pilot program started in 1993, which allowed, you know, a regional center, which could be for-profit or non-profit businesses, that could aggregate investor funds and put them uh, towards a job creating entity, a JCE. Uh, and and you, know, you, you invest in a new commercial enterprise, a new commercial enterprise, invest in a job creating entity. And as long as you create so many jobs, uh, you, know, you qualify for the program. Um, you know, the biggest challenge has been you know, every, every three years, this pilot program has been reauthorized by Congress. Then you know, about six years ago in, in 2015, uh, Congress really kind of stepped back and it's really become, um, you know, a disagreement. Uh, and it's not a disagreement between Republicans and Democrats. It's actually uh, a bipartisan program. And there's very various uh, Republicans and Democrats from across the, the aisle that support the program. But I think that the challenges has been that, you know, traditionally immigrants tend to uh, want to um, immigrate and invest in, in areas uh, where there's other immigrants. So the biggest beneficiaries of that are obviously been states that have large immigrant communities like Texas, like Florida, like California, like New York. And the states that have been left out are, you know, the smaller rural states, for example, North Dakota, you know, uh, Iowa, Vermont. And, you know, the, the challenges in, in Congress have been, although everyone in Congress realizes that this is a program that's brought about $40 billion in foreign direct investment over the last few years, I think the, the, the disagreements has been, how do we make it, you know, more equal where every state could get their fair share 
of their investment dollars. And, and those are, you know, kind of some of the challenges that, that, uh, that, you know, there's been disagreements in Congress in the last six years on reauthorizing the program. Um, you know, Congress or Senators uh, Grassley and Leahy have currently a bill that they've introduced that are essentially, essentially integrity measures uh, to clean up some of the issues in the program to make sure that there's less fraud, to make sure that, um, you know, there's a lot more transparency in the program. And, and they have expressed that once that integrity measures uh, are approved, you know, they, they can have conversations about uh, additional visas and, and expanding the program and lowering the wait times. But those have kind of been the challenges. You know, the, Senator Grassley is a Republican from Iowa. Senator, Senator Leahy is a Democrat from Vermont, uh, a co-sponsor of the bill. Senator Coons from Delaware, a Democrat. And then on the House side, there's 17 co-sponsors from both sides of the aisle, Republican and Democrat, that are pushing to expand this program, especially given uh, you know, kind of the, the the downturn in the economy caused by the pandemic, this could really be a great program to help rebuild and build back better uh, for the economy. And that's kind of where we are right now. But although the program is set to expire on the 30th, I think there's a negotiation that's been happening in the last few days. We're hoping that, uh, you know, the program could um, have a, a reauthorization of five years or sometimes shorter than that. And I think that will happen over the next few weeks before the 30th expiration. Perfect. And what do you think is on the horizon for EB-5? So how do you see the future of the program unfolding? Just so, you know, I think I think on both sides of the aisle in, in Congress, there's definitely a lot of interest on, uh, you know, expanding and financing uh, infrastructure in the United States. I mean, in the United States, you know, one of the things that made the United States, um, you know, the forefront of the Industrial Revolution is the highway systems, the, the trains, the various different infrastructure that the United States had built you know, 100 years ago that many other countries didn't have, you know, the, the, the highway system, the trains, the, the you know, the, the various different ports and, you know, all the infrastructure. And, and unfortunately, a lot of that infrastructure is crumbling, getting older, and it's been kind of, you know, very unpopular, both Republicans and Democrats over the last 30 or 40 years. They've been fighting and, you know, nothing has gotten done. But I think today, really both on both sides of the aisle, both the Republicans and Democrats, I think, want to, you know, approve budgets to go and spend money on infrastructure. And what be better way, I think, to, to help some of that direct investment through various immigration programs. So I think that the program is gonna expand definitely. You know, unemployment, you know, it has crept up from, you know, three and a half percent. It went up as high as nine, nine and a half percent. You know, the height of the, um, the uh, pandemic currently, it's probably around six and a half percent. But how do we create jobs? How do we uh, build more real estate? How do we get, uh, you know, uh, the economy going? And one really good way to do it is through the EB-5 program. So I can't imagine uh, that Congress uh, wouldn't want to expand this program. In fact, there's a lot of talks to reauthorize the program and hopefully expand the program to other areas like infrastructure and help them build uh, not just uh, actual infrastructure, but also social infrastructure in this country. You know, a lot of people wonder why, as compared to Canada, for example, where they have a lot of skilled worker programs, why the U.S. is, you know, some of the major programs are really focused on investment. And do you think that's unfair to people who might not be able to afford to invest such high amounts of money, like the program right now is sitting at 900,000 U.S. dollars, which is quite a bit of money. Do you think that's unfair to not afford the opportunity to migrate to people who just can't afford that amount of money for investment? Yeah, I mean, I think I think there's a lot of different ways to look at it. I mean, I, I, I for sure when I when we immigrated as political refugees, we couldn't afford an investment of five hundred thousand. But I think 
you know, I think people look at this program, especially when it was 500,000, they look at it as this millionaire program. What they don't actually see is, you know, we talk to a lot of these investors on a day-to-day basis. Many of these are investors that, you know, have to borrow money from the family members. And, you know, the, you know, the parents really wanted a good life for their kids and wanted their kids to be able to afford an education in the United States. So they would put up their home and get a loan and put that money up and hope that they can get their investment back if they invested in the right project. And they would, you know, they would invest that, you know, really in the kids' future. So, you know, there are definitely a, a small percentage of investors that are high net worth or extremely high net worth. But the majority of the people that actually invest in the EB-5 program are middle class people that really want, you know, what's best for their family. Now, you know, one of the mistakes I think that was made is by increasing the price to 900000 Now that's made it a little bit harder for, you know, you know, the middle class and people from other countries to afford the program. But I think one way really to expand, and I think Canada's done a great job of this, is to really, you know, at E1, E2, some of the uh, venture and, and, and investment programs at, inv- at smaller different, you know, smaller different thresholds to introduce some of those programs to, to you know, uh, to go along with the EB-5 program. And, and one way we really need that is comprehensive immigration reform. And I think the time is finally getting there. Uh, for both Republicans and Democrats to to start revisiting comprehensive immigration reform. I mean, if you look at it, the last time there was an immigration bill that was passed as in 1990. I mean, that's 31 years ago. So the time is definitely here. And I think there's definitely a will and want for people to have more um, skilled individuals and, and more immigration and, and, you know, to have legal immigration and not force people to you know, have to cross borders illegally or people to break immigration. You know, one way to really do that is for Republicans and Democrats to really get behind legal immigration and expand legal immigration to, to help uh, with the various programs and also to help rebuild the economy there. Yeah, you know, my parents are immigrants as well. Of course, they immigrated to Canada, which which is different, but it, it's the same plight for every immigrant who's moving to another country and leaving their home country behind and starting a new life and just trying to become successful. So, you know, my favorite part of this whole process when I'm working with my investors and my clients is seeing these families evolve and seeing them being able to reach those goals and actually achieving their green cards and moving to the U.S. I think that that's my favorite part of it. And I think that's what's so great about this program is it actually does, even though people think it's just a program for high net worth individuals, like you said, it's a majority of people we work with are middle-class families that have saved up money or taken out loans or borrowed the money. And they're just doing this for the betterment of their future. And so I think what you said is really true on that front. So Priya, what suggestions do you have for people that are looking for an EB-5 lawyer or a consultant in the Middle East, Africa, or India that want to you know, see what countries they should immigrate to and what countries would fit kind of their needs and wants? I think it's really important to do a lot of research on this front. So, um, you know, like I mentioned earlier, there are so many people that are offering the EB-5 program that are offering all different types of program in Dubai. You'll find someone everywhere who's offering investment migration. And so because there are so many people out there, you know, it's good to go off of referrals, it's good to go off of reviews, and it's good to go off of doing your own due diligence by meeting with people, asking the tough questions, and really seeing if they know the answers and know how to respond to those questions. So I think where we stand out, for example, is um, both myself and my colleague in our office were both lawyers. And I think people see the difference when they're able to ask us a question and we know the intricacies of 
of the EB-5 program and of their own personal situations and the questions that they're asking, source of funds and all these things. So I think that's really important to look into is to do your research and do your due diligence before you go with an actual consultant. I think another thing is, you know, don't get blinded by things like people telling you you're going to get a faster processing time. I can get you a green card in six months instead of 24 months. Um, I think those things are, you know, they're just, it's a lot of smoke and mirrors. And I think people need to look past that and really go for the quality consultants that are going to be there through the full journey because it is a long process. Yeah, I mean, I think it's really important that, you know, there's various different uh, pieces of advice that investors need on investment or immigration. And I think immigration attorneys are really well equipped, especially ones that, you know, really understand the niche of EB-5. They're not necessarily just generalist immigration attorneys, but ones that actually know the, the intricacies of EB-5. But they're, they're equipped to give investment advice in terms of what, pro, you know, what programs they think are safe for immigration purposes that they're going to you know, feel comfortable that they will get their green card. But I think in that, investors also falsely believe immigration attorneys on, on the actual investment advice. I mean, the way you have to look at it, I think you, you're, you have an investment, which, you know, registered investment advisor or someone, uh, you know, with a financial background that would understand, you know, the intricacies of real estate and how capital stack works, how paybacks work, you know, what it means to be a senior borrower, what, what it means to be a subordinated borrower, all of that. And I think, you know, investors should, you know, um, talk to a financial expert or a CPA or, or in many cases, you know, registered investment advisor to, to decide what investment makes the most sense to get their money back. And then they should, you know, talk to an immigration lawyer, someone that understands EB-5 to understand what makes uh, the most sense uh, from, a, you know, from getting their green card, because those are two different decisions. I think a lot of times investors uh, make that mistake and are getting, you know, investment advice from the immigration attorney that should only be giving them legal advice well, as, as it pertains to, to immigration. And, and then the, the other part, I think, is, you know, sometimes I think, you know, just a rule of thumb, if someone's trying to be too high pressure sales and pushing you towards one particular project or one particular investment, I think an investor should be aware. I think an investor should ask a lot of questions, should compare and contrast three or four different projects, should compare and contrast, you know, ask a lot of questions and, and, and go down and understand kind of the, the various, you know, strong points, strong suits, and, and, and weak suits of the different pro project and, and, and make that investment. And, and really any, any um, uh, you know, a consultant should give investors a few different options and shouldn't just be focused on one project because that's really just high pressure sales and it's not really investment advice. And maybe, maybe you, can, you can touch on that, Priya, from your, from your experience. Yeah, I think, I think that transparency is super important. And that's something we always stress with all our investors is like, look, Transparency is important, not just from us and us being able to give you all the information that you require to make this very important decision, but also transparency with the projects. So, you know, we like working with projects that are going to be there for the investors that are going to be available to speak to them, to provide them information, to talk about their project, to answer questions, because the project itself should know the ins and outs of their project the best. But yeah, I think those high pressure sales situations or where there aren't a lot of options in front of you, it's important to shop around. You know, that term is a little bit 
it's a negative term shopping around when you are a consultant, but it is important for investors to shop around because this is a big investment and it is an important decision and going with the right investment, both financially and for their immigration process is important. So um, definitely we encourage that as well. And like you said, we encourage people to go speak with a financial advisor, go speak with a financial professional and do your due diligence on the documents and the information in the project itself. Um, one thing that I think people don't realize is super important in projects are the capital stack. Would you be able to talk a little bit briefly about what the capital stack is in, a, in an EB-5 project and how that works? Because that is actually one of the most important things that people can look at when they're deciding on a project. Sure, Priya, that's actually a great, um, great point. And we'll have actually have a program dedicated where we'll go over an hour just explaining uh, capital stack. But just, uh, you know, kind of in a brief uh, couple of words, uh, you know, the way that capital stack is put together for real estate projects in the U.S. is very unique. You know, in various different countries, a developer, for example, would have, you know, let's say 100 million and they're building a project for 100 million. They write a check cash and they go and, and, and finance that and build it. And if it's, you know, they, if they're condos, they sell it. If it's hotels, they lease it out. But that's how real estate gets done in a lot of uh, places. But in the United States, it's a very sophisticated uh, investment uh, you know, market that basically banks finance construction loans. And in fact, most of the construction loans are financed by very large banks. And, and you know, banks have different underwriting requirements. You know, in the old days, you know, a bank would, would put up essentially, you know, like when you buy a house, let's say you, when you buy a house, you want to finance it, you, know, the, you, you get maybe 90% financing, you put 10% deposit, and you buy the house and the house itself is a collateral to the bank until you pay all your mortgage and you, you know, then they give the title to you. And in, 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 a, in a commercial real estate market, it used to be, you know, banks would finance 70% of the, of the project costs. And then the developer would have to come up with 30%. And, you know, they would, you know, they would, op, you know, they would build it, they would operate it and they would pay the mortgage just the same way uh, as, as a, as a, you know, as a residential project. But, you know, the, the market's gotten more sophisticated and, you know, depending on where you're in the capital stack, you know, the lower you are in the capital stack, the, the more, the less risk you have and, both, uh, and also the less return you get. So for example, uh, in the United States, you know, in, in, a, in a typical uh, transaction you know, with, a, with a sophisticated bank, the, the senior loan is essentially the lowest interest rate, but it's also uh, the lowest risk because if in case of a bankruptcy, in case everything goes south, the, they get their investment back before there's, and if there's anything left over, it goes to the subordinated borrowers. So also there's another um, uh, financing scheme in the United States called, called the, uh, the mezzanine financing. So what that means is a mezzanine, it's, it's a debt financing, it's subordinated, which means it's junior in precedent to the senior financing. And it has a slightly higher in interest rate because it's, it's riskier, but it has a lower interest rate or it has a lower return than the equity. So the, you know, if, the, if you look at basically how capital stack works, you know, typically, you know, and, and, and that changes with the market. You know, if, if the market is, is uh, you know, kind of towards a downturn, banks, you know, may only finance senior loans up to 50 or 55 percent. And then the, the, the mezzanine loan takes uh, the, the, the percentage of investment from, let's say, 55 percent to about 70 percent or 80 percent. And then the rest is the equity. So the equity investors take the highest risk, but they take the highest return. The mezzanine investor have slightly less risk. Um, uh, and they get 100% pledge of the membership interest, and you know they get a little bit lower return than equity, and the lowest return is the senior lenders, but they also have the lowest risk. So that's kind of how 
capital stack works, but we have a program where we're going to spend an hour just going over in detail how capital stacks work. Um, but, you know, there's a lot of legal terms. There's a lot of intricacies of, of uh, real estate law that, that are into those. And we can kind of explain that in the program uh, in detail. We're actually looking forward to that episode. Perfect. Thank you all so much for joining us. Um, we're looking forward to many more of these programs and podcasts. And uh, stay tuned uh, to our next uh, program where we host Aaron Grau, who's the executive director of IIUSA, who will be talking about uh, the current legislation in detail. To contact the Investment Migration Report, please email Priya Malik at Priya, P-R-E-E-Y-A at stepglobalgroup.com or at Team Vaziri at the Investment Migration Report at gmail.com or connect to our pages on LinkedIn and YouTube. Thank you for listening.